Well, I'm told that at last count, there were approximately 19 major world religions, 19 of them, all around the globe. We know that uh, right now about 31% of the people on planet Earth uh, confess faith in Christ as Lord and Savior, part of the Christian tradition. We know that about 24% are part of the uh, Islamic uh, faith tradition. Another 15% are Hindus, and Buddhism comes in at about 7%. So taking all four of those traditions, Christian, uh, Muslim, uh, Buddhist, and Hindu all together, we're talking about 5.7 billion people. Just take that one in for a moment. 5.7 billion with a B people who are personally practicing, committed to encountering the divine through their particular tradition, through the religion of their childhood or of their community. So I have to ask you, why is it therefore not just pure arrogance for Christians to say that Jesus is the one and only true way. How is that not just arrogance to say that kind of thing? Some of you may have wondered that from time to time. Well, centuries ago, Jesus of Nazareth appeared before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and he made this statement. Jesus said, I came into the world to testify to the truth and everyone on the side of truth, everyone committed to truth, listens to me. And Pilate famously rejoined in response to this statement, what is truth? What is truth? It wasn't just a rhetorical question, it was in fact a little bit of a cynical question. It revealed the attitude of an age that had seen so many religions and so many conflicts in the name of some god or some religion. And because of this, to Pilate, it seemed almost laughable that, that the truth was being claimed by this man, Jesus. It seemed almost dangerously fanatic that Jesus was bent on the idea that he was the truth. He was obviously a very unenlightened man, this Jesus of Nazareth. Well, if we're fully honest, I think some of us sitting here today have our own doubts about the exclusivity of anybody's religious claims. Maybe that's not you. Maybe you're perfectly certain in the exclusivity of your uh, belief system. Uh, but, but many people... Uh, tend to look at these things with a little bit of, of uncertainty about it. And people tend to break down into sort of three major viewpoint camps that I want to identify for us and have us think about. Some of us believe that all religions are essentially true. And by that I mean that we think that the major faiths may vary a bit here and there, but since they all appear to be heading toward the same mountaintop, um, we think, why get 
bent out of shape trying to establish the superiority of one particular path. I mean, shouldn't we just be thankful that there are so many people trying to get to God, uh, focused on encountering the divine? Can't we just let go of all of the, the need to be right ourselves? Another set of people hold that, that each religion is at least partly true. Uh, each has a piece of the truth, but no one really sees it all because surely we need multiple religious angles, viewpoints, to take in the fullness of a mountain as large as any God that could have created everything that we see. Uh, surely every religion has a piece of this. And then there's this third viewpoint, which contends that no one ought to make exclusive claims to the truth of their own religious viewpoint, because all religions are fundamentally false. All religions are a racket, this viewpoint holds. All religions are a, a way of reassuring ourselves, they're a, a, a way of... of advancing our ethnocentric or tribal production and position. It, it, all beliefs are so conditioned by the culture in which we grew up and the power structures that we like to be true in any general sense. I can't say they're really, really any of them true in a global kind of way. So what do you make of all this? Are you a little unsettled by what I'm even talking about? Would anybody like to come up here and take my place right now and carry it on from this moment on? And, and how do we square the kinds of viewpoints that I've just suggested with the words of Jesus who plainly says, I am the way, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me, except through me. Or, to use the words of the Apostle Peter, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. He's talking about Jesus there. How do we not regard those kinds of statements as either arrogance or stupidity in the face of those 5.7 billion people all pursuing these various ways. Well, I think we have to begin by, by confessing that at times, Christians have been somewhat arrogant and stupid about their belief systems. I, I think if we're ruthlessly honest with ourselves and with the Christian tradition, we would have to admit that we have sometimes condemned the moral failures or inadequacies of other people while we had huge logs in our own eyes. Uh, we have been brash about the rectitude of our own faith and the wrongness of other people's beliefs when the truth is we've often actually been ignorant of the full content of our own faith. We know this but from, from all kinds of surveys that test the basic biblical knowledge of the American people. And, and they're presented with statements. And now, which part of the Bible is that from? And they say, I think that one's from the Old Testament. It's from Ben Franklin. 
right? Even regular churchgoers are often really ignorant. We are about whole critical dimensions of, of our faith. And we're relying almost entirely, most of us, on hearsay when it comes to judging other people's religions. We know so little about, really about, what people of other faith traditions truly believe. I think it ought to humble us as Christians that when Jesus spoke of people who exemplified great faith, and Jesus did that, he would talk about uh, lifting up people who exemplified incredible faith, that when Jesus pointed to those exemplars, it was to a Roman soldier and a Canaanite woman that he was pointing. People entirely outside the Jewish tradition, entirely outside of his current band of disciples. It was in those people he actually saw great faith. And it convicts me personally to, to remember the words of the Apostle Paul, that in the eyes of God, the most excellent way, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 12 and then in, in uh, chapter 13, the most excellent way, the way that God is looking for, is demonstrated by those who show a love that is patient and kind, that is not jealous or boastful, that is not arrogant or rude, that does not insist upon its own way. And if you have traveled much through this world, then you know that it's not only Christians who exhibit this kind of humble, serving, persevering sort of love that our very own scriptures teach us is God's way, is what God's looking for. What does the Lord require of thee but to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God? How many times do we see people even outside of the Christian faith walking that particular way in a manner that humbles us and challenges and maybe even inspires us. Um, having said all of that, how informed or rational is it to conclude that all spiritual paths converge atop the same mountain? I mean, how reasonable really is that contention? Uh, Ravi Zacharias, a very thoughtful Christian leader who grew up in India observes this. He says, you know, you hear it thousands of times and more growing up in the East, in, in the place of part of the world that he grew up. And we, the, the thing you hear is that we all come through different routes and we all end up in the same place. How many of you have ever heard somebody say that? You know, it's just by different names, we're all heading for the same place. Zacharias goes on and says, pluralistic cultures are beguiled by the cosmetically courteous idea that sincerity or privilege of birth is all that counts. Um, and you'll hear people talk this way, that, that essentially, if, as long as you're sincere about your beliefs, this is what matters most. Or, or if you were raised in, in a, this particular location and came, then, then that has to be something that God would respect and could not judge you for. And Zacharias goes on and says, that the idea is that truth like beauty is subject to the beholder. It's in the eye of the beholder. 
And then he goes on and says this. This is what I find really challenging. He says, but in no other discipline of life can we be so naive. Like in no other zone of life would we ever actually accept that idea. How many of you have, have kids? Okay. How many of you are related to people with kids? Okay, that's pretty much how I think all of us are connected there. So imagine a, a parent saying to a child who's going off to school for the, for the very first time, honey, uh, when, you, when you're coming home from school today, I just want you to feel free to go down any road you choose or get on any bus you'd like. Name one parent, one loving parent that would actually say something like that. Because, honey, they'll all find their way home. Now, could your child find their way home from any road or any particular bus? Maybe. I mean, if they had a good map or a guide or a particularly friendly and flexible bus driver, they could get home. I remember one time I got off at the wrong, I, I, I fell asleep on the bus and I wound up a long distance away and the bus driver very kindly drove me back to where I needed to go. But could that same child get woefully, even dangerously lost on the journey even though she or he was on a very well-paved road that was traveled by a whole lot of other people? Could they still get lost? Yes, they could. Yes, they could get very lost. So when I, I hear people uh, claiming that all religions are essentially the same and wind up in the same location, I often want to ask, how much time have you spent studying these other religions? I mean, tell me more about the research you've done on this particular topic. So I, I know we don't have time for a whole comparative religion course. You didn't come to this place today for that reason. But it, it, it seems important to observe that the differences between the way that the various, just the top four major religions uh, define the personality of God, the way they understand the nature of God, the character of the afterlife, and the path to communion between God and human beings that the way these different traditions understand just those big ideas differs so widely as to make you wonder, if you know anything about these things, wonder whether we're even talking about the same mountain when you really look closely at it. So if you want to discern uh, how much directional alignment there is between one religious worldview and another, there are some really helpful, simple questions to ask. First question, where does this belief system say we came from? How did we get here? Two, what is this religion's explanation for the problems of the world? Three, how do the problems get fixed? Four, what's our role in that? And you will find that Christianity and Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism, just to name four, answer those questions like really differently. And finally, I think it's also helpful to ask, 
in the parts of the world where a particular religion has been dominant, I mean, it's really had its sway for a long time, what kind of culture has emerged from that cult, from that religious belief system? Um, how has it advanced human flourishing in that part of the world? And, and which of the world religions, just on the face of it, seems to offer the best hope of getting people to higher ground? These are questions I think really worth thinking about. Um, so when you compare world religions, you find that there are some substantial differences. So maybe all religions do not actually lead to the same mountaintop, but are all religions partly true? I mean, is there something to be gained from, from knowing or respecting other religions? Well, I want to say the answer is yes, absolutely. There's a lot to be gained from respecting and, and trying to understand other religions. The Bible teaches that, that humanity uh, was created in God's image and likeness. How many of you ever heard that phrase before? The image and likeness of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. That means like everybody, everybody on planet Earth has been created in the image and likeness of God. So as much as our perceptions uh, sometimes get disfigured and stained by culture, by sin and other influences in our life, all human beings still retain the capacity to, to recognize God. For the scriptures say, God has, has put eternity, he has set eternity in the human heart. Uh, the scriptures say elsewhere, all people live and move and have their being in God. We're like fish swimming in the, in the ocean. God is around us, all of us. And as St. Paul writes, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been seen. Meaning that they're evident to people on all the, the continents of the earth. Now, given that universal foundation, don't you think we should expect to see some commonality between the various religions? How many of you think, yeah, I think we might see some commonality? We do. We absolutely do. Almost every one of the major religions has some version of what we term the Ten Commandments. I mean, there's not a single one of these various faith traditions that doesn't think that coveting is a, is a bad thing and wanton murder is a bad thing at, at the core. I, I, I'm ashamed to say that you can also find Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and others who practice the code that is the Ten Commandments even more faithfully than I sometimes do. We can definitely find those kinds of people. One of the other commonalities between all the major religions is the sense that we approach God through a series of of religious steps, that, that we're on a spiritual journey, all of us, and there are particular uh, steps that we can take to draw even closer to God. In Judaism, for example, you get up the mountain by following the requirements of the law. That's what the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the time of Jesus were always stressing, that we need to take those steps that are prescribed in the Mosaic law. In Islam, you get up the mountain by believing in the oneness of God and in Muhammad as the final prophet. 
You, you need to pray daily and give alms to the needy and to purify yourself through fasting and, and, and hopefully make the pilgrimage, pilgrimage to Mecca one day. These are called the five pillars of Islam. These are the steps that you take to draw closer to God. In Hinduism, you get up the mountain by a series of good deeds, often associated with hospitality and the like, that are accomplished over many reincarnated lifetimes. You're on a very long journey in Hinduism. In Buddhism, which actually doesn't posit the existence of a literal God, an independent divine being at all, you nonetheless progress up the mountain of enlightenment through steps of discipline that are aimed at negating yourself, at getting selfishness and selfism out of your soul. And what's curious and interesting is that you'll find all of these same spiritual disciplines in Christianity. Uh, very much the same kind of, of sense of, of the movements needed to draw into greater intimacy with God. But here, I think, is also where Christianity is most dramatically different from other paths out there. Christianity teaches that human beings will never reach the mountaintop by our own effort. I want to really invite you to sit with that one for a minute. We can't get to the top on the basis of our own efforts. The true summit of God's holiness is so high that we could spend a lifetime doing good deeds, questing after spiritual truth, repeating the sacred rituals, and never get higher than the hill country of his majesty. And if you want to know what, what Christianity, what makes Christianity truly unique, like exceptional in the world of religion, it, it, it's this, this reality that it says in order to go up, you have to give up, in a sense. You, you have to be willing to surrender the notion that it can be about you. And it must be about what God does. It must be about the choice that God makes to close the distance between us. This is what Jesus was trying to say when he uh, shared in one of his most famous teachings in Matthew chapter 18. What do you think, he asks, if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? Now, this is a great teaching Jesus is giving us here because the reality is nobody would do that. You got 99 in the sheepfold. What, you're going to go out in the snow looking for one? No, you'll expect that one, that one will either come home on its own when it gets hungry, or if it's wolf bait, so be it. It was stupid. It shouldn't have left the sheepfold. But Jesus is actually saying, he's, he's, he's driving towards a point. He goes on and says, and if this person finds that sheep, I tell you the truth, he's happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. And then the other shoe drops. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. What makes Christianity different is this amazing counterintuitive notion that the great 
God that dwells on the top of the mountain cares about individuals. So much so that he will leave the, his, his, his high and lofty place and enter out into the wilderness, come down the mountain in order to find human beings. Every other religion's about trying to go out and find God. This is about a God who comes to find us. And unlike other religions, God doesn't come to find us through a prophet or just through the pages of a book. Yeah, he sends prophets. Yes, he's given us a book. But the, the Christian story is about the God who comes in person, the God who, who becomes human flesh, the human being Jesus of Nazareth. And Christians believe that, that he came to us in this way to show us his nature, that he is a holy God. And the Muslims are, are partly right about this. God is holy. He is like no other. Christians believe that, that, that God came to show us that what we do here on earth counts. This, what we do in this life counts in the next life. And the Hindus are partly right about that. Uh, God shows us that to enter into the life that he has for us, we must deny ourselves. We must die to things that are selfish about ourselves. And so the Buddhists are partly right here too. But what no other religion tells us is the motive for all this. The motive behind all of this. God voluntarily places himself in a position to be rejected and abused by beings so inferior to him as bacteria are to human beings. That, that's, that's like, that's the gap or more. He puts himself in a position to be subject to bacteria in a sense. And the penalty that that perfect holiness uh, requires to eradicate heinous sin, God takes upon himself on the cross. He pours out his very life's blood to negate the power of that sin so that humanity doesn't have to go to that cross, doesn't have to pay that penalty. And so the question is, why? Why does God do this? And Jesus answers, because God so loves this world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him, whoever puts their life in his hands should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to be its judge, said Jesus but he came that the world might be saved through him. Now, God is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. He offers the opportunity for salvation to every human being. He's in search of every human being of whatever religious background. And I know that it seems like a scandal that he didn't come up with a more general methodology for delivering 
human beings from sin and death. And though it seems incredibly exclusive that Jesus must somehow play a part in it, that the sacrifice of Jesus was essential to, to, to washing away the sin that separates us from a holy God. I know that seems very, very narrow, but I want to put this in perspective for a moment. If you are on a sinking ship, do you quibble with the color of the lifeboat? Or with the fact that the lifeboat is on that side of the ship instead of where you're standing? Do you really do that? Or, or, or if you're running from a forest fire and you find suddenly that you're at the edge of a cliff and there's this huge, uncrossable chasm in front of you and you look up and down in panic as the fire's getting closer and you can feel the heat of it on your back and you notice that there's a bridge 30 yards this way. In that moment, you go, oh, that's too far. Why isn't there one right here where I was born? Do you do that? Not if you're sensible to the conditions. Instead, you think to yourself, I'm just so glad there is a way. I'm glad the way is right there. I don't think any of us sensible to the realities of life will be deeply offended in the end when we realize that God has provided a way. There is one mediator between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus says St. Paul, and we're going to praise God and be thankful that there is a lifeboat, that there is a bridge, that through Jesus, God has made a way to safety for you and for me, and that his heart's desire is to bring everyone home. That's what he wants. So, is it possible that there are some people out there in other faith traditions that are walking the way of Jesus, the most excellent way, without knowing it's the way of Jesus? Is it possible that there are some people who are actually pleasing God who don't even know the name of Jesus? I think it's possible. I think it's possible. Uh, but I can say with certainty based on the scriptures that if they do cross over, then it's because of the sacrifice of Jesus, the name of Jesus, that the power of salvation reaches them and brings them home. And because of that, I think the calling is so clear to all of us that, that our role in this life is to go forth with this good news to share with everyone we possibly can, to go to the very ends of the earth, if possible, to, to, to share with people the, the marvelous tidings that there is a bus that goes reliably home. Go therefore into all the world, said Jesus, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, for I am with you always to the very close of this age. Please pray with me. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus. 
and for the love that motivated it. Help us, Lord God, to be your hands, your heart, still at work in this world. Use us even this week, Lord God, to encourage someone on their spiritual journey, to bear witness to the wonderful truth that you care for us and that you want all of us to come home to you. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.